The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me, the Gospel according to Mark, we're going to be picking up tonight, Mark chapter 3. <laughs> Hopefully tonight, examining basically Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. So Mark 3, 7 through 19. Now, as I've tried to do this study, and I appreciate your participation in such, I've tried to kind of break this down into paragraphs. And of course, a lot of weeks we don't even get through the paragraph we intend to. But I will tell you tonight, there are two different paragraphs, if you want to call them that, that we're covering. One of those contexts, just basically talking about Jesus and his separation from the people. He has to take a moment, tries to take a break. I don't know. I know from the human perspective, he was probably tired. He was exhausted. Obviously, we see that other times in Scripture where he does do that, where he does go and rest and different things. He's human, obviously. But in addition to that, this is kind of one of those reset moments where Jesus just wants the people to pause for a moment and hopefully consider why he was among them. And even though he's the great miracle worker that he was, and of course that proved to us and them that he was the Son of God, that was certainly essential and needful in his time. He also wanted to refocus their attention on the fact that he had so much more to offer than just those physical miracles, that physical healing that he was able to do and pull their focus back to the fact that he was here for more spiritual reasons. And he's already said back over in the first chapter and the second as we were going through that, that he wanted to be here to preach. He wanted to teach. And of course, that's what he's going to continue to do throughout the whole time. So there's kind of that separation that you find in that. Then the next section, which picks up itself really, uh, I would say long about something like verse 11-ish or 12-ish, depending on how you divide that out. There's also the selection that he makes. And of course, by that, he's going to complete the choosing of his apostles, his disciples. Of course, you can be an, a, a disciple and not be an apostle. But uh, in this case, you can't be an apostle without being a disciple. So if that makes any sense, but he's going to make those selections. He's already chosen five of those men already a couple from the previous chapters, one just back up the page in the choosing of Levi, one of our more recent contexts as well. But he's going to complete that list. He's going to end up numbering them among that as 12. Of course, we know eventually Judas would take his own life. There would be the replacements come in in Matthias, and then the Apostle Paul added later. So sometimes you can get into a spiritual warfare and thinking about that and say, well, he didn't just have 12. He had 14 eventually, and that's true. Uh, but he had those 12, particularly at that one time at least, in his first uh, great selection, if you will. Now, some of the other gospel accounts, and there are parallels to both of these sections. If you're thinking about that separation, uh, there are some parallels found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 19. So Matthew 12, 15 to 19. Also, you can find a similar parallel in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. So Luke 6, 17 to 19. And then, as far as the selection, where he chooses those disciples, and the other Gospels are not quite as specific as what uh, Mark is, but he does do that. Matthew chapter 10, 1 through 14. So Matthew spends actually a little bit more time on this. And also Luke 9, 1 through 6. So that's those two contexts. Basically, Matthew 12, Matthew 10, Luke 6, and Luke 9 are where you find those parallel accounts uh, given in that case. So you can look at those on your own time. There wasn't a lot of variation between the two. In this case, to some point, 
Uh, Mark gives some detail that some of the others do not. He kind of expands on that. But it is notable to see that we do find Luke moving from this case, and I mean by that, that's the election of those disciples, apostles, straight into his version of the Sermon on the Plain. Now, you've heard of the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard of the Sermon by the Seaside. There was also the Sermon on the Plain. And in many of those cases, Jesus did some of the same teaching. For example, some of those Beatitudes particularly are related in all of those cases. So he continues to preach the same message, the same sermons, if you will, several different times. But, of course, we know what his spiritual goal was. And, of course, we know because he was God in the body, he also knew exactly what men needed to hear. So he made that choice in that. But beginning our reading here again, Mark chapter 3, verse 7, beginning, here's what we find concerning that separation. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples at the sea, and the great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, great multitudes, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake unto his disciples, the small ship, I'm in verse 9, should wait on him by, uh, because of the multitude, lest they should throng him, or overpower him, overcome him. And they had, for he had healed many, insomuch as they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and, and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them, that's a reference directly back to those uh, unclean spirits particularly, but he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Okay, so that's kind of that first section. Again, that separation that he needed. Now, some things that kind of stood out to me that I'll try to share with you here. First of all, it says, and Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples. And so we find instances at times when Jesus goes even beyond his disciples, separates himself beyond them because he really does need just that moment of peace. What, what are one of those times? There's one of those times that stands out above everything else when Jesus separated himself from the disciples. Garden of Gethsemane. There are other occasions when we have reports that Jesus went up in the mountain to pray and he sent his disciples on the sea. And there are other times that he kind of pushed those disciples back as well. But in this case, the text specifically says in all these accounts that he took them or sent them away and he went with his disciples. And it says in spite of that fact, the great multitudes from all these places, they, quote, followed him. Now, we've looked at the word followed a couple of different times, particularly in the selection of those first four of those apostles by the seaside, and then even in Levi as well. All of those were reported to have followed him. And that idea is they got right in step with him, as you might say, they kind of got in goose step with him, and they got right beside him, and they continued after him. That is, they gave their lives. Most of these men, all of these men eventually, I should say, would give their lives over and separate themselves from their former lives for that period so that they may completely follow after him. And so that's kind of preparation, not for this section, but the one that's coming up there when you pick up in verse 13, as we will a little bit later, in the fact that his disciples had already were committing themselves to that. Jesus did not choose these apostles, if you will, at random. We don't assume that. He did not choose them by happenstance or chance. They were already among the disciples, more than likely. They were already among his followers. 
And so unlike the accounts we have of the first five where we know specifically kind of what they were doing, when they were doing it, how he approached them, what he said to them, which in all cases basically was, hey, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That's the case of the uh, disciples that were there fishing by the seaside and such. We have other occasions like Nathaniel when he's introduced and he calls him out, but the specifics here are not known as to each of those things other than to say he does make that list. So he comes and grabs his disciples, if you want to call it that way. He withdrew himself and they followed him. The disciples were with him and the throngs followed him. Now then these things are listed here and it says specifically verse 8. I think this is probably the key of the text. And that from Jerusalem and in Numea, from beyond Jordan, and they had about Tyre and Sidon, great multitudes, they had heard what great things he did and came unto him. Why were these people, at least reportedly in the context we just read, why were they following him? What's mentioned there? They things that he did. So they saw him for his works. They saw him for his wonders. They saw him for the mighty deeds, the miracles that he did. But that gets them off kilter to some point of relating back to the spiritual needs. Go back with me. I mentioned it a moment ago. If I can at least get to it, <laughs> spotting it on the page here. Remember what Jesus did back in the preceding chapters, how that he came to them and he actually told his disciples as many men began to follow him, he said, let's go into such and such a city or the next city. Why? So that I may do more miracles? Preach. He was here, main, pur main purpose, main focus to preach and to teach. And you can find that in chapter 1 and verse 38. The direct quote, he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. Therefore came I forth. And so to put that in a little bit better English, uh, as we would interpret it, he says, this is why I'm here. I'll do all these miracles. I'll commit to doing these things that prove that I am God in the body, that I'm the Son of God. I'll do all that. I'm okay with that, he says. But I want to be here to preach. And so when we read where we are in our context in verse 8, and it says they came to him or they heard about the great things that he did, you have to assume the majority of all these people were just there to get that next miracle. Now, am I trying to throw them under the bus and say there were no other intentions there? No, I wouldn't want to try that. But specifically the text says that's what brought them there. Remember the account, we haven't got to Mark's version of some of these things, but you remember the account that John records, John chapter 6, he feeds those 5,000 men alone. Of course, there were many more there. What happened at the conclusion of feeding those 5,000? Many went away. You say so? Yeah. Toward the end or after that miracle is concluded, you can find that miracle listed in about the first 13 verses of the context. And then Jesus shifts gears from that very physical, practical, real-life miracle that they had witnessed to speaking on the spiritual things, to trying to share with them that, look, I'm only showing you this physical bread to allow you to understand the spiritual bread that I am. It says his disciples started to go away. And that's where some of those more famous, if you want to call that, that's not the right word, but more well-known quotes come out where he speaks to his apostles and basically he says, will you also go away? Peter had an answer to that. What was it? Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast 
I, I keep accidentally, I'm using that uh, sarcasm, but they didn't say, thou hast these great wonders that we've enjoyed. Because why? Because the disciples, the, what eventually would be named as this list coming up, these apostles, they had began to get a grasp on that. And so just backing away and considering that, a question arises. Tyler used a great question a moment ago that I jotted down on my little scratch paper as well. But one question that rises in my mind is why come to Jesus? That's the simple one. We have right here why they were doing it in the moment, but why should one come to Jesus? And not as one of the scribes. So there was a contrast. So he had words that they wanted to. Which Peter just, we quoted Peter, thou hast the words of eternal life. Why come to Jesus? No trick question at all. Yeah, we come to him for what he does as well, but we come to him because, and they eventually, many would learn to do the same, they come to him because of the greatest thing that he does, or did, and that is he sacrificed himself and made salvation possible. Second question is somewhat related to that, but why, very similar actually, why pray to Jesus? This is not a text about prayer, but it does say that they were coming after him for those physical things. Why would you bother to pray to Jesus? That's so important. He is our mediator. He's our connection between God. Only path toward God. Let me just kind of share with you where I had to roll through this in the last three or four days. I was kind of looking back and kind of, I, I run way ahead of myself and that I don't catch up. And so I have to study and I, I don't mind it, but I have to keep coming back and going back over. Here's what came to my mind. When I pray to God, what are some of the most common things that I may do or say in that prayer? You know, we kind of got our, a lot of us have kind of our standard models. Nothing wrong with that. Jesus gave us that, what we call the model prayer. So we've got some guidance there. What? To take care of you. Take, you ask him to take care of you most of the time. Many times and most, most often I would, I would say exactly the same thing. We're asking for him to care for us. Not to put him on the spot, but I love to hear David Griffin pray because there's always variety and, and, and sincerity. Forgiveness of our sins extremely important, which hopefully we all get, get to that in the midst of our prayers. We, sh we should be at that place. Pray for others. Thanksgiving. And, and these are types of prayers, by the way. There's Thanksgiving, there's petition, there's a number of different types of prayers, you know. Uh, we hadn't done it as often here lately, but you, you may have in the past at least seen a congregation that may gather, say, on a Wednesday night or, or when something is, in, you know, kind of pending on our community or whatever, may have a prayer service. And sometimes in doing that, they may ask different men, hey, get up and lead a prayer and specifically make mention of this need or that need, what have you. But, well, at night when I'm praying my prayer, I start out uh, after I ask him to take to the people in the hospitals, nursing homes, rehabs, and assisted living. And then I say, Lord, 
take care of my church family and their families. That's the second thing I pray for is my church family and their families. Okay, if y'all want to know why you're doing as well as you are, that's, that's one of the reasons right there. She said specifically she prays for nursing homes, hospitals, and her church family. Very important. That reminded me of a, a, a man that used to attend Mumford growing up. His name was Joe Haynes, and he always prayed for the, I can't really quote it exactly right, but the orphans, orphans, widows, and those in jail every time. And his voice quivered right at that point. I mean, he was a sincere uh, man anyway, but he prayed for the orphans, the widows, and, the, and the, I've messed that up, but those in jail. All that great uh, and wonderful, but, but it kind of brings out, with the exception of, of course, Patricia, blew my point, not really, but many times, the majority of times, we pray for the physical things. You know? God, provide me with this. Assist me with that. Be with so-and-so, and we'll, we'll pray later, if I can remember to do it, we're going to pray especially for Catherine at the end, her surgery, for uh, Nathaniel and his successful surgery today. But many times we'll pray for the most physical things. We'll focus just on those physical things. Not to say that we're not mindful of the spiritual or what have you, but prayers for someone's souls are important, including our own. You know, Father, forgive me for one, but for another, just say, God, you know, please be with those that are lost. Help me to be somehow put in the providential way of their life. Help me to help them, to assist them. It's important. I only bring that up tied to that first question, why come to Jesus? Well, we ultimately need to be coming to Jesus and everyone else too for the salvation that he offers, for the spiritual life that he gives. And so our prayers should be kind of more adjusted, I think, toward that. But you know, that's not normal in society, really, is it? Where do people often focus the majority of their time in their life? Supplying the physical for themselves, you know. Uh, we have to work, we have to do things. I mean, I, I get all that. We make a living, we survive. But we spend so much time providing for our physical needs that sometimes our spiritual needs, I don't know if they sit in the back seat. Sometimes they're, you know, dangling off the tailgate somewhere off the trunk. And it's very important that we do that. Another thing that came to mind is, you know, and this is just a reflection. That's all I'm saying this is. This doesn't necessarily apply to us. But you think about those that are most valued in society. And I'm talking about careers, jobs. Who are some of the most valuable people in our society, particularly here in the United States? I'm going to say medical, you know, doctors. To care for what? Our physical needs. Certainly not the case here, but you know who the least valuable people in society are? Those who try to help with spiritual needs. I mean, the pay rates, the, the appreciation shown, all that sometimes varies so widely. But yet, these men, it says to us, came to him because they saw the great things that he did. Put this parallel with you, and you can turn to it. Go to your right just a little bit. Go to Mark chapter 8. We'll get to this one day, and you'll be very familiar with it, even though we'll just go to it right now. But look with me in Mark chapter 8. Um, let's see here. 34, 8 verse 34. Mark 8, 34. 
And when he had called the people unto him and his disciples also, he said to them, Whosoever shall come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's sake, the same shall save it. For what, and this is one of those pinnacle questions that are asked, for what is a man profiteth it, that's King James speak, what is he profit, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give, verse 37, in exchange for his soul? All viable questions. Questions that many at the point that we're at, you can go back to chapter 3 now, but questions that I, I'm assuming many of them did not quite yet comprehend. Jesus was willing to heal these people. That was a tremendous help in society. We, we, I'm not denying at all that he was willing to do that because we know that he did. And in some of the contexts we've already covered, including the one we're in right now, he didn't just heal a select few. He healed as many as showed up. And this is kind of a wrapping up of that here. Again, verse 9, just to pick this up, this came up to a point that he spake to his disciples that were with him there, that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. So Jesus basically says, look, you need to get me a way of escape. What were many of these people, not quite yet in this gospel account, but what eventually would many of these people want out of Jesus after they saw all these miracles? Not just the healing, but what else did they want? Well, food. I'm being more broader than that. So yes, they wanted to make him king. And you look at the situation they're living in, particularly the Jews, if you will, uh, living under the Roman society or, or way of things, and, and they were not being cared for, save on their own. And they had no one really rising up at that point that was taking a lead, that was going to promisingly lead them out of anything like that. So they were struggling. The early church, not quite to that yet. We're actually pre that a little bit now in this account. But once the establishment of the church, what often happened to many of the Christians at that point? Persecution. Many things took them lower and lower on the totem pole, if you want to call it that, lower in society, gave them more difficulty, more problems. And so oftentimes in that part of his ministry, if you will, they desired to make him a king. And so he says, go prepare a small ship, go prepare a boat so that I can get to that, if you will, before I'm thronged or overthrown or, or run over. And it says specifically, verse 10, he had healed many, Insomuch as they pressed upon him, for to touch him, many who had plagues and unclean spirits, for they saw him and fell down before him and cried, Thou art the Son of God. So they're just continually coming to him. Here we have records such as the Syrophoenician woman that we hadn't gotten to here either, but all they desired was to just reach out and touch the hem of his garment. If I could just get in, just get close enough. Again, looking at this physical, which ultimately would help. Ultimately, it was greater. But is it better to die, even in our lives today, is it better to die, if you want to say this, you know, cancer-free or, or without any malady or without any ailments and end up in eternity in hell or just to go how we are in this life and end up 
I mean, that's as plain as you can say it, but end up in, in well, we know that Jesus deals with that. He's going to deal with that later, a few pages to the right. Well, he starts talking about it'd be better to cut the hand off than end up in eternity with hell. He's very specific about that and those teachings. But he healed many, and then those unclean spirits, the, if you will, the devils, whatever you call them, they again recognize thou art the Son of God. Now, we mentioned when we were covering that earlier, I hope we did, uh, a lot of times when they said that, obviously they were stating a truth. There's no argument about that. They were stating a truth, and we even put a chart up back then that showed how many times those who had unclean spirits or devils or whatever you call that recognized who he was. But also, in addition to that, by them thinking or stating who he was, to some point, there's evidence in the Old Testament, they might have believed that gave some, some, for, some form of dominion over them or over him. Not a great connection, but just for illustration, what did uh, Adam do on behalf of God just prior to him giving that dominion over all the earth? He gave him the authority to name those animals, to name those things. But we have here, they made this statement, Thou art the Son of God. Are there any other comments about that separation? I don't want to say there's not much there, but I think there's as much there as we can cover right now. All right, next section here then, picking up verse 12. So he straightly charged them, so he not make him known. And he goeth into a mountain, and calleth unto him those who he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained twelve. I'm in verse 13, 14 now. He ordained twelve that they might be with him, and that they might send them forth to preach. Now, you scan down the page, and you see that reading of who those were, specifically those named out apostles, the selection of such and all. But what stands out to me in this, and I, I really appreciate it, and I know I've said it many times, I know you say it in your study as well, the Word of God to me is just absolutely, the Word almost came out unbelievable, but it has to be believable, it wouldn't be what it is, but it, it just, it's amazing to me how much detail God gives in such few words. You say, well, that's real handy, you've been in this book for like 19 weeks and we're on chapter 3, okay, I'll take that. It's a fast-paced book. We're not going as fast as we need to probably, but there's so much there. And what we're told right here is that when he went up into that mountain, he, quote, called unto him who he would. That's what you would expect for the Son of God, right? If he's going to choose disciples, he's going to call them unto him, and he gets to pick whoever he wants to. And where this comes up in such a contrast is that many of the, and Jesus was considered this by them as well, rabbis, the teachers, if you will, many of those in Jesus' day who would call someone to be their disciple, the follower of them, they did that through a very similar system to what we have today. I didn't participate in the college scene, but what do you have to do to get into a college? I said, get into trying to lead that. You got to make some kind of application. You got to, you know, you got to do. Really, comes down. You got to, you know, write a check sometimes. But you apply for those things. And in Jesus' day, many of those rabbis or those walking teachers, which is what Jesus turned out to be as well, when people came to those men, they would have to do much the same. They would have to go to Rabbi so and so and say, "Look, I would love to study at your feet, to hear your teachings." 
they would have to kind of apply to be a part of that. Jesus did something very different. He just looked out and said, I'll take you and you and you and you and you. But there's something even more here. It says that he called them whom he would, and they came unto him. I already mentioned that. What have these men done in the preceding chapters? The five he's chosen, including, what do they all do? They just left whatever they had. Levi in that tax collector's booth, probably making a very profitable living in life, having everything, maybe even physically, couldn't prove that, but I mean, ideally he could have, especially the location, as he would have been seated there near the Sea of Galilee. So he's collecting taxes basically straight off the sea. Men come out, they've got their, got their bounty, they come up, hey, pay me now. And you collect those things. But they just follow him. They just go with him. So Jesus gets to call, choose who he would, and they came unto him. And then verse 14, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him. I know there's several of you got different translations. What are some of the other words you might have in place of the King James for ordained? Appointed. I knew that one was, I studied that one. Anybody else, anything different? It's pretty much the gist of it. Ordained, appointed, and those words are similar. I mean, I don't know that there's much divide. I know that we might have used the word appointed more in daily speech than word ordained, you know. I ordain you to carry the trash out or something like that. You know, we wouldn't do that. But the wording here and the language here that, again, is, is very rich implies that he made them that. He doesn't just point and say, all right, you, you need to follow me. You, you do what I tell you. Or he doesn't just ordain and say, okay, I've chosen you. You'd be great for this. He makes them that. How many times can we doubt what God can make of us? I'm very hesitant because I've seen it do a lot of damage. All right, I'm dyslexic. If you've ever tried to read along with me, or I have dyslexia. See, my wife's very tickled on that. I don't read well at all. I know that. And so that limited me in my life. I think I've read one other book. Completely, well, two. I've read two now. I'm up to two. I read Miss Jane Pittman in the seventh grade. I don't know if you know anything about that. And I've read The, the Shepherd and a Sheep or something like that. It's on the 23rd Psalm. I love those. I've actually read those books multiple times. Other than that, it's the Bible. It's about as much I can struggle through. But there's one other book I've listened to on audio. And, and my disclaimer, I do not, do not at all, endorse this man or this author's teaching or anything like that, but it's a very interesting book. Um, it's called 12 Ordinary Men. Again, I can't read. It's probably that thick if I try, but it's a John MacArthur book. I don't endorse what he teaches or what he says. But in the, in the book, The 12 Ordinary Men, he just goes through, and I was really shocked. It was one of those I thought, well, I'll listen to it, and probably in about 30 minutes I'll cut it off, and it was like nine hours long, and I, I finished it, but he just goes through and says, here are all the instances where these disciples are seen or named or, you know, where we have them. And it pretty much just went through Scripture. And I was really impressed that he took that, but just goes through. 
So there's a lot to these men, those that are going to be named in a moment. But he ordained them. He made them what they are. That they should, here's the next one I've got bracketed in. I like Tyler. He's catching on a few things that, that Cliff and I like to do. I like to you know, talk about why I marked my Bible. I underlined that. I circled that. I've got bracketed. That's my most important. It goes like that up under it. I've got bracketed. He ordained the twelve that they should be with him. To be with him. Matthew 12 verse 30, I, I paraphrase this. Okay, there's much more to it. But one of the statements Jesus makes paraphrase there. Matthew 12 verse 30, he says that you're either with me or you're what? Against me. That's of course the paraphrase of that. But he wants them to be with him. To continue is the tense of that. To continue to be with him. Now we know that Jesus had that physical presence with them for three, three and a half years roughly. John gives a good chronological order of that. You can follow some of the feast days and particularly the um, Passover days that are listed there and kind of get an account of how long he was there. Three, three and a half years. He spent that limited amount of time with them in that sense. But he ordained or made that they would be with him. Now, I think there's some relationship that goes here. The word is not used. The word calleth is used up in the preceding verse, verse 13. He calleth unto them. And then he made or ordained them that they might be with him. Again, not a literal connection here, but it reminds me so much of the church. If you're like me and your, your languages, if you will, are, are limited, there's a few words that a lot of us uh, who've been in Bible classes and studies on different times, a few words that most of us can kind of, you know, we can pop our chest out like a robin on a spring day, and <clears throat> the Greek word is, you know, baptizo. What does that mean? That's baptism, immersion, you know. Ecclesia. I don't say these properly, by the way. It's the monthly version. But ecclesia, what does that mean? The church, the called out ones. And that's what it is. That ek is actually more like, if we were, well, the way it's spelled, if you will, dropping it into English, letters, it's E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. But it's more similar to that red sign there. Exit. Out of. And then the classia are called out of. And we look at that and say, okay, well, that, that's the word for church. That's not the word here. It's not the word here. But he did calleth them. And he did ordain them, appoint, make them to be with him. You see, there's a sense in which to be a part of him, that's an obvious thing, you have to be with him present with him and a lot of times we put so much emphasis and i'm using the word church proper the church is standing for what i can't do the thing anymore but you know the thing we used to do open up the door and here's all the people there's a steeple and supposedly open so the difference between the building right and the, and the people that are in it matter of fact the building is not the church at all it's, it's the gathering place and it's the building it's not even, this is not even a sanctuary, as some might refer to it. I don't take direct offense to that, but I try to help people. You know, nothing holy about the place we're in, anything like that. 
And we focus a lot on that word church and say, well, that's the people. Yes, it is. So you, you can't really, you know, say I'm going to go to church or you're going to go meet with the saints, which are the church, you know, be technical and argue whatever. But we put a lot of emphasis, and we should, I think we should put a lot of emphasis on the fact that, well, they're the called out ones. But guess what? They're also the assembled ones. Jesus didn't call his disciples and appoint them and say, okay, I'm going to do my thing. You stay back home and do the best you can. I'll see you when I come back to town. No, he called them to be with him. The, the called out ones, the ecclesia of the Old Testament, what was that? You remember some of the way that developed? The church? The church of the Old Testament was the called out of Israel. It was, it was the sound, the trumpet sounds, what have you, that were made that called those people out to assemble, assemble together, to be together. And I think we do ourselves well to emphasize both sides. Yes, he called them. He called them out of where they were. But he also ordained them to be with him, assembling with him. And sometimes that's what we miss out on. Because he was a teacher, and so he, he taught. That's right, and a lot of that was there. Yep, he would. He would make better explanation if you don't call it that. Oftentimes, to them. So there's a sense in which, and we have to understand this as a Christian. Standing in judgment, we would give account for whom? Ourselves. Very individual. 1 Corinthians 5, 10, other passages. Very individual in that. But there's also a sense where the church is communal. You know, it's, it's corporate. I don't want to think corporate like big companies, but it's incorporated. It's a cooperation. There's the word I want, really, of people who come together. So Jesus numbering these 12 is to call them, sure, out of where they were, but to have them to assemble absolutely with him. And then something else comes out here. All end up all end up studying at Christ's feet and coming to Jesus. John seventeen six. 
God selected those, and he in turn. How did he give them to him specifically? I don't know. I welcome you to answer it. I don't know right off the cuff. Oh, yes, of course. Ultimately, ultimately that would be the case. Baptism is the way to come in him to be with him. That's one of Absolutely. And he would definitely, that would be a part of what he would ordain them to preach or to teach. We know that as, as Jesus' life is closing, I'm thinking about Matthew's account because, well, Mark, Mark does as well in, Matthew, in Mark 16. Matthew 28, what does he tell them? Go ye therefore and teach all nations doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, and he says, lo, or... What's the, what's the, I've, I've said low so many times. What's that mean? Uh, be sure to know that I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Is, you'll see, you'll see all the work that they did represented there. And of course we gain. Mm-hmm. He gave these men authority. That's what he's going to do at the next section of this after he names them out. It gives them authority. Verse 14, we'll try to close with this because I know we've run out of time already, but he ordained the 12, made them to be with him, of course, and then to send them forth to do exactly what? To preach. That's what's named first. Now, the verse goes on to say to preach, and then verse 15 adds to that, also to have power to heal Sicknesses and cast out devils. But he sent them forth primarily in the beginning there to preach. And so here's the thing about it. That it's never separated. It's separated oftentimes in our hearts. I'll raise my hand, my heart. But it is never separated. Those that are called in are also sent out. There's no divide between someone who says, well, I'm with him. And those who turn around and say, well, I don't want to go, I don't want to go out. He called them to preach and have power to heal. 